Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. This is the first episode of Series 6, Groundbreaking Novelists. And most of the series will be about women who, in one way or another, changed the art of the novel or possibly the world. But there's a big gaping hole between the invention of writing and anyone of any gender writing a novel. So today is Episode 6.1, Women and the Written Word. Roughly 85% of the world's adults can read and write. That's a percentage that would have astonished people of previous centuries, and yet to me seems sadly low. Even so, it has taken a very long time to get to this sadly low number. I often find archaeological dates to be curiously and wildly contradictory, but I believe the earliest indications of intentional markings that may have a meaning were found in Bilzingsleben, Germany and date to around 400,000 years ago. The bone in question has two groups of tally marks that might be a very early sort of writing. Or it might be art. Or it might be a calendar. Or it might be something we haven't thought of. This kind of marking becomes much more common in later years, and you may have this mental image of a caveman dressed in skimpy yet pungent animal skins clutching a flint knife and occasionally pausing to beat his hairy chest and grunt. But there are quite a few things wrong with that image, not the least of which is the unconscious bias. I can best dispel it by way of a social media post I've seen a couple of times, so you know it's true. Or maybe that's not the best way to find truth, but anyway, here's the story. There's an anthropology professor lecturing her students about a prehistoric bone with 28 notches in it. This, she says, has traditionally been viewed as man's first attempt at a calendar. However, what man really needs to know when 28 days have passed? I would suggest that this is woman's first attempt at a calendar. At this point, you could practically hear the feminists whooping it up in the background. My initial encounter with this story was unattributed, which added to my skepticism, but the most recent time, it did have a name attached. Sandy Toskvig, the British writer and presenter, which is a significant improvement. But even so, I was asking, who is this professor? What's the name of the bone? Don't you think the moon and its cycles were of some interest to early man? Did women of that time menstruate at the same rate as our modern, well-fed population? I could go on. I tried to answer these questions, and my best guess is that the bone in question is the Labombo bone. It's the fibula of a baboon that met its end in about 35,000 BCE. 
It was found in the Lebombo Mountains between South Africa and Swaziland, and it has 29 clear and regular notches. Maybe it's a woman's days between periods. Maybe it's a man's count of the nights he stared at the moon. Maybe it's a woman's count of the nights she stared at the moon. There really just is no way to know. My point here is that most of the very early writing has no authorship attached. Our mental image of an excessively male author is certainly possible, but it is just as possible that the earliest attempts at writing were done by someone excessively female. Either way, notches on a stick are hardly a complete writing system. For that, we have to skip thousands of years and thousands of miles to ancient Sumeria. The earliest clay tablets we've found are from around 3300 BCE. They're receipts, which is hardly inspiring, but there is no doubt that the need to keep the accounts straight was the major motivation behind the invention of writing. Some of it is all very logical and straightforward. If you're buying three sheep, you can draw a sheep with a tally of three next to it, and everybody's clear. But verbs are harder than concrete nouns, and abstract nouns are harder still. There's a lot of ambiguity, not to mention 1,500 or so symbols to learn. Sumeria's great invention was not only to use this vast array of symbols, but to phoneticize them with the rebus principle. So, for example, if I wanted to write the sentence, I saw you, I would first draw a picture of a human eye with the pupil, iris, lashes, and all of that, because it sounds like the pronoun I. Then I'd draw a picture of a handsaw, because it sounds like the past tense of the verb to see. And then I'd draw a female sheep, or you, E-W-E, because it sounds like the pronoun you, Y-O-U. And there you have it. A sentence that would be quite hard to convey through pictures based on meaning is instead conveyed through symbols based on sound. This system greatly expanded writing's possibilities while simultaneously shrinking the number of symbols that you had to learn. Throughout this whole development, we have no authors, so we can't say whether any women geniuses lay behind the breakthrough, but we can say that the very first attributed author in world history was a woman. Her name was Enheduanna, the daughter of King Sargon of Akkad during the 24th century BCE. She was appointed high priestess of the goddess Nana, or Inanna, in the city of Ur, a number of hymns are attributed to her. Here is a translation of an excerpt of one. Queen of all given powers, unveiled clear light, unfailing woman wearing brilliance, cherished in heaven and earth, chosen, sanctified in heaven, you, grand in your adornments, crowned with your beloved goodness, rightfully, you are high priestess. Your hands seize the seven fixed powers, my queen of fundamental forces, guardian of essential cosmic sources. You lift up the elements, bind them to your hands, gather in powers, press them to your breast. Vicious dragon you spew, venom poisons the land. Like the storm god you howl, grain wilts on the ground, swollen flood rushing down the mountain. You are Inanna, supreme in heaven and earth. If you are thinking that it's a long way from here to Jane Austen, I agree with you. 
One of the reasons we've got a long way to go is because Sumerian as a language was ideal for this type of writing. It's mostly monosyllabic, and it has lots of homophones. Many languages aren't and don't. So when other people saw the idea of writing and tried to copy it, that Rebus principle, it didn't always work so well for them. Some of those people who picked it up were Egyptians. And someone in Egypt eventually thought of the alphabet, where a symbol stood for a phoneme or single sound like b, p, t, or s, rather than a whole syllable or word. The Egyptians used this great innovation mainly for graffiti. They preferred their other writing systems, and they had several, for the real serious writing. Either way, I have looked for an Egyptian woman to be in Hedwana's counterpart, and I've drawn a blank. There is some evidence of women as doctors and even as vizier, which means they were probably literate, but I just couldn't put my hands on one who wrote anything I could quote to you. If you know of who I am missing, please send me a message. But do remember that most Egyptian texts are anonymous, such as the famous Book of the Dead or the famous story of Sinuhe, whose author is the Shakespeare of ancient Egypt. And some texts are falsely attributed to great men of the past, so some of the true authors may have been women. It wouldn't be the last time a woman wrote under a man's name. The Egyptians may not have thought much of their alphabet idea, but their Semitic vassals did and the idea flowed back east toward Sumeria, where it doomed the older, more traditional forms of writing. It also took on new characteristics as new languages faced new difficulties. The Egyptians hadn't bothered with vowels. They didn't need to. Their language still made sense without them. Not all languages did. Old Persian added vowels for the first time in the first millennium BCE, which was important for clarity in some, but not all, languages. By the time the alphabet wound its way through the Phoenicians and into Greek, it needed a full set of vowels and functioned just like our modern alphabet. One of the earliest surviving Greek documents is by a woman named Artemisia, who lived in the 300s BCE. The curse of Artemisia is an appeal to the gods to punish her former partner for denying their dead child of the proper funeral rites. She is, understandably, distressed, and she writes, While this cry for help lies here, may he and what is his be destroyed evilly on land and on sea by Osirapis and the gods who sit in Posirapis. While this appeal lies here, may the father of the young girl receive no favors at all from the gods. If anyone removes this document or wrongs Artemisia, the god will inflict punishment on him. One scholar wrote that this curse is not the work of a professional scribe, but the writing of an uneducated woman who uses rounded and unjoined letters because she can form no others. Such letters were commonly before her eyes in public places, while she had probably seldom seen a book. I myself am not sure you can call a woman of this period uneducated if she could write at all. And I do notice that that critic was writing in 1899, which might explain the patronizing tone. But the point is that by the time Artemisia was writing, writing had been invented. We form our letters differently, but the fundamental concept of the system was fully developed. But what about other places in the world with different writing systems? India had an early set of symbols that may have been a complete writing system, 
but it died out and is still undeciphered. Writing was reintroduced to India a thousand years later through contact with the Sumerians. And then there is China. Writing appeared in China in about 1400 BCE. It is very different from anything Sumeria came up with, so the Chinese are often given credit for inventing writing the second time in world history. But it doesn't show the same long period of development and experimentation that we see in Sumeria, leading some scholars to think there was some borrowing involved. Like, maybe someone explained the concept to them, but not the mechanics of how it worked. This has happened in more recent times. You will not be surprised to hear that it's mostly Western scholars saying, you totally stole the idea, and it's mostly Chinese scholars saying, no, no, we invented it from scratch. I'll let you make your own decision on that. Chinese writing made use of the Rebus principle, as Sumeria did, and they did have a phonetic component, but they never developed an alphabet, and to this day, the symbols are tied to meaning on the word level, not the phoneme level, like an alphabet. Many Westerners are surprised that China didn't simplify down to 26 letters and save themselves the trouble of learning thousands of characters. But there are answers to that. Like Sumerian, Chinese was monosyllabic and had many homophones. They didn't need an alphabet to convey their language the way the multisyllabic languages without homophones did. And anyway, the evidence is overwhelming that efficiency is not and never has been the primary factor in shaping any writing system. Just look at English spelling. Tradition, formality, and status are far more important. Chinese writing was not just functional, it was art. Calligraphy has always been highly valued in the Far East. And Chinese women were part of this. The oldest collection of Chinese poetry is the Shijing, or Classic of Poetry. It has 305 poems from the 11th to 7th century BCE. The authors are, unsurprisingly, unattributed. But many of them appear to either be women, or at least they were written from the perspective of a woman. The first named female poet of China is Lady Xu Mu. She might even be China's first named poet of any gender, but I'm finding that hard to verify. At any rate, she lived in the 7th century BCE in the Wei Kingdom, which is now in Henan province. She married Duke Mu of the neighboring kingdom, which was not her choice. Her poem, Bamboo Pole, is about homesickness. With a long and slender bamboo, I fished by the shores of Qi. Can't help thinking of the river and the land so far from me. On the left, the fountain gushes. On the right, the river flows. Far away, the girl has traveled from parents, brothers, and home. After her marriage, her home kingdom of Wei was attacked. Her poem Fountain is about seeing the refugees from her homeland arrive. Her husband refused to help, and her poem Speeding Away is about leaving without permission to take supplies to the Wei people. Eventually, with her help, the Wei kingdom was saved, and she is remembered as a hero. The only other place that can lay a claim to inventing a complete system of writing is Mesoamerica. In America, the very earliest texts are from about 700 BCE, and that's well before the most literate society, the Maya, got going. As in China, the writing seems to spring forth without much protracted development, 
And while that seems strange, they do still get credit for inventing it, because how could it possibly be borrowed? However, some have pointed out that there are some curious parallels between Chinese and Mesoamerican writing. And if Spanish ships in the 1500s could regularly cross the Pacific, who's to say that just one Chinese ship might not have done so centuries earlier? There is absolutely no proof of this, but it's an interesting theory, because if so, and if the Chinese borrowed the idea earlier, then writing has really only ever been invented once in all of human history. And even if the theory is not correct, you're looking at twice or maybe three times. There is absolutely nothing inevitable about it, no matter how obvious it might seem to us. I looked for an ancient female Mesoamerican writer, but as in every other culture, the works are unattributed. And there aren't that many works anyway, because the Spanish were very efficient at destroying them. If anyone knows of someone I should have mentioned here, please send me a message. Now, none of the early women I talked about today were writing novels. Men weren't either. Some of that is about cost. Papyrus was expensive. Clay tablets were unwieldy. Few could afford to write long texts. Then copying and distributing and preserving long texts was also laborious. Mass literacy required paper, which was invented by the Chinese. Europeans didn't figure it out until the 1400s. Paper was cheap compared to any of the other options. And then there's printing. The Chinese invented movable type, too, but it's less of an advantage in a writing system with so many characters, and they had a substantial publishing industry using block printing. But in an alphabetic writing system, the advantages of movable type were huge. Just 26 compartments in your printer's box for the lowercase letters, plus the 26 more for the capitals, plus a handful of other symbols for punctuation, numbers, and the like, and you can print absolutely anything you've got to say. So when Gutenberg invented it for the second time in world history, but first in European history, and he had paper to print it on, it was absolutely transformational. The importance of printing in human history is comparable to that of the wheel or fire, the rest of history simply couldn't have happened without it. Of all the novelists I am about to share with you in this series, only one managed to write such a thing before the invention of printing. And she wasn't before paper. Her story next week. But I will close out today with a thought written by an Egyptian scribe 4,000 years ago. A man has perished and his body has become earth. All his relatives have crumbled to dust. It is writing that makes him remembered. My major source for today was A History of Writing by Stephen Roger Fisher. As usual, there will be a link and pictures on the website at herhalfofhistory.com. A good way to support the show is to recommend it to a friend, and another good way is to give it a rating or a review. Spotify now does ratings. Very easy. You just click a button. But the absolute best thing you can do is simply to come back next week to hear about Murasaki Shikibu, who may or may not be the world's first novelist. Thanks! This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. 
Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.